Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Your favorite White Sox podcast is a new name, but the same great taste. It's time to talk shop and talk socks on the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's May 2nd, 2018, as the Chicago White Sox wrapped up their series in St. Louis, where they lost both games with the same score, 3-2. to two. We'll recap the series, especially the good starts, out of James Shields and Lucas Giolito. Preview the upcoming four-game series against the Minnesota Twins. Discuss if Yohan Mikata needs a break. And who should be closing games, Nate Jones or Joaquin Soria, moving forward? Joining me is the co-host of the podcast and managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Even though the White Sox lost both games against St. Louis, I'm a bit surprised that these two games were as close as they were. I suppose so. I mean, um, when you look at the way the White Sox played, I think they helped themselves a lot just by playing pretty good defense, running the base as well. You know, they didn't lose the runs and outs in the margins like they've had in a lot of games this year. So that allowed the pitching to kind of be, um, you know, a lot of the pitching to play up, I guess. You know, it's not like James Shields. You expect him to go toe-to-toe against Michael Waka every time and Lucas Giolito with, uh, with uh, Carlos Martinez. But um when you play that kind of error-free ball, or at least you know the the error that Sanchez made didn't really hurt, um, you know, and you, and you get some extra bases and you don't give up bases and outs. I think that helps. Mm-hmm. Well, to recap, as far as the two games, the, again, the White Sox lost both games three to two. 
In the first game, as you mentioned, the James Shields start, Shields did give up a leadoff home run to Tommy Fan, and I was thinking at that moment, here we go, this is going to be a laugher. But no, it wasn't, because Shields would only allow one more hit over his six innings pitched and at one point retired 15 straight batters. Yohan Mikado was two for five without striking out, bonus, and he drove in both runs. But closer Joaquin Soria blew the save as Matt Carpenter tied the game with a solo home run. Marcelo Zuna doubled, and Yadier Molina had the walk-off hit. It is Soria's second-blown save of the season as he is four for six in 2018 uh, in that category. In Game 2, again, the White Sox lost 3-2 to two today. Lucas Giolito had a tough assignment facing Carlos Martinez, the Cardinals' ace, but this was Giolito's best performance of the season. He kept the Cardinals scoreless until Martinez himself hit a solo home run off Giolito in the sixth inning. And that's when things started to trail off for Giolito as he would later give up a two-run homer to Dexter Fowler. The White Sox had a rally late as they were down 3 to nothing, as they would score two runs, but they couldn't get over the hump. Yohan Mikata had to leave today's game with hamstring soreness. So there's a lot to unpack as far as in these two games, even though it's a mini-series. The White Sox are 8-20 and on the year now. They are 3-18 and against teams that are not the Kansas City Royals. Uh, but even though they lost today and yesterday, I want to focus on the positives, Jim. And, and starting with Giolito, I was worried that the White Sox would have to send him down to Charlotte because of his command issues. And we, we spoke about it in great length as far as on this show and Monday's show. I mean, 21 walks in 25 innings is not good, but when you just have 11 strikeouts, that makes it a lot worse. Uh, but today, in six and a third innings, uh, Gilito had seven strikeouts to just just two walks. And I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that this is a stat line that we'll start getting used to with Gilito. Uh, so the question is, Jim, what was different about this start for Lucas Gilito? Well, I think uh, it's kind of... A, you know, to borrow a Hawk Harrelson uh, sentiment, it was kind of contagious in that his control allowed him to make, uh, you know, better pitches with his slider late in the count. His slider especially, his curveball, he got some swings and misses on that. But really the slider is the pitch that played up for him today. And he was in counts that allowed him to uh, use it and get swings and misses. He's also able to, you know, second time through, pull the string on it when they're looking fastball first pitch was able to flip the script on him and, and get some cheap strikes that way. So um, it was just kind of his stuff complementing itself. Uh, fastball, sitting with the slider, setting with the curveball. Um, I think when it came to Martinez's homer, you know, it's given that he slugged, I think, what, 216 or something like that during the game. Lifetime, I never hit a homer. You know, it wasn't a bad pitch situationally. It was a fastball kind of inner half, and he just got around on it put everything he had into it and hit a homer. And I think that's when Giolito was a little bit rougher and, and maybe a little bit less confident with the stuff he's cruising along. And then that's a pretty big speed bump to hit once the pitcher hitting one out. So I think that might've been a bit of a, a learning process there. Um, you know, maybe getting re reacclimated to the national league style of play and, and the rude awakenings that can happen. And, um, but ultimately I think it's a positive. And I think when you look at, um, his first few starts, I think, you know, the warm weather probably had something to do with it, just being able to have a better feel of his breaking stuff. And, and the fastball command, I think, was definitely more important in that he was able to, you know, paint the outside corner with fastballs and uh, work both sides of the plates and then set up that diving pitch low and away or low and into left-handed hitters. It all worked for him. The weather aspect, I, I'm hoping that it doesn't become a crutch for some of these pitchers. 
just because it is Chicago. It's going to be cold in April. And if you're good enough, it could get cold in October. Yeah. So it's obviously something that you're going to have to learn. But moving forward for Lucas Gilito, is the slider the most important pitch to determine that if he's going to have a good day or a bad day? It might be, or at least, you know, kind of a, you know, maybe not a, you know, the curveball still might be a secret to looking dominant and overpowering and such. But when it comes to, you know, I guess a good day versus a bad day in terms of, you know, whether he can be functional, even without his wipeout stuff or even without, you know, great counts in his favor. Yeah, it might be. That might be fair to say. And and I think for you mentioned the cold weather thing, uh, given that it's his first cold weather April, you know, in the major leagues, I, I think I'd cut him some slack. But yeah, if it's a you know, problem going forward, uh, you know, in you know years down the line, I think that might get a little bit tiresome. And you know, with with him being somebody who recently renovated his mechanics and, and you know a big guy who needs to you know with taller pitchers, it's a little bit harder for them to repeat their delivery. You know, perhaps it's a, you know, half weather, half release point early in the season. And, you know, maybe this hopefully the stuff will be ironed out. But the next time uh, a cold weather month rolls around. OK, I'll give him a pass. But I'm just saying, Jim. Yep. No, no, it's it's fair. It's fair. And, and I don't like leaning on it too much myself. But I think in this case, you know, given the difference in this stuff, you know, perhaps it's yeah, I, I don't think any one problem really changes the equation so much for a pitcher but i think it can you know in gilito's case when he's still you know searching for his you know trying to establish himself in the major leagues and establish i guess his base level of quality you know i can see these these problems feeding into one another moving over to james shields and i think your prediction about shields before the season began um, might be right or at least for me because i'm starting to warm up to james shields especially from what we hear right we had joe Weil the voice of the Winston-Salem Dash, on the show on Monday. And Joe shared the stories that he learned when talking to Dane Dunning and Dylan Cease on how much James Shields helped those two. And holy cow, what a start Dylan Cease had this week. Seven innings, striking out 12 and only allowing two hits. Man, he checked off a lot of things in the as far as the worry column of, well, he can make it to the seventh inning and get through it. So uh, just a terrific start. And, of course, Dane Dunning is pitching right now for the Birmingham Barons, his second start as he's already been promoted. So the, there's that part of what Shields is doing as a mentor. And then when his start against St. Louis, again, I mentioned as recapping the series that I thought after Tommy Pham hit that home run that this was going to be an awful night. But Shields was able to throw, I'm just going to call it what it is, his junk, uh, his mm-hmm. curveball and his breaking stuff, was able to get it on the outside quarter. Sure, the strike zone was wide, but Shields, as the veteran, took advantage of that. And he, again, only allowed one additional hit, and he got through six innings and put the White Sox in a terrific position to win that game. And I'm wondering if Shields is starting to understand better this arm slot and starting to trying to maneuver through these games in order to eat up six innings because he understands that with this type of bullpen, you can burn it out. So somebody has to go out there and eat it. And if, if he, you know, he has that experience of eating innings and with, with shields, there's a difference between eating inning, eating in innings, I'm sorry. And uh, being, you know, successful in your starts is there anything that you are noticing watching James Shields pitch, Jim, that could be successful moving forward for his starts? 
Well, based on the last few times out, it seems like the difference with Shields and and the kind of pitcher he is. I think you can call him like a crafty righty or a junk baller either way. But when he's really scrambling, he's really going to his curveball a lot and and mixing speeds on his curveball, you know, going from the high 70s to the high 60s. And it's a neat trick and, and, and it works, you know, to a certain extent, but it also leads to more walks, more base runner traffic and, and gives you the idea that he's you know scrambling for outs more and that it could blow up on him in any second. I think when you look at the start he had against the Cardinals, it's he was throwing firmer stuff, uh, you know, straighter stuff for strikes. The fastball, um, you know, he, he didn't lean on the fastball, of course, like he, you know, because he does throw his secondary stuff more often. But you know, he's throwing his fastball for strikes. He's throwing a slider, you know, kind of a, a firmer breaking ball. Um, for strikes, and, and and that's a little bit easier to locate than a curveball. And I think Giolito has the same thing going for him, uh, where the if you're looking to grab strikes as well as get swings and misses, the slider is a better pitch for that. Uh, and then changeup too, he was able to get in better counts with his fastball, and, and you know hitters had to respect the fastball enough to where the changeup played up. So I think when you look at Shields, uh, you know, in the starts ahead and and the kind of night he has, I think early on you can kind of tell based on. You know, how often he can throw his fastball, how often he can throw a slider, and, and just how little he has to throw the curveball, especially the slow one, because I think it works for him, but it kind of signals to me that he doesn't have much confidence in his other pitches, and he's kind of just getting by on more like on gimmickry than uh, you know actual command in, in a full arsenal and a full repertoire that he's able to sequence in a way he wants to. Losing is never fun. And I know it's a rebuilding year. And again, the White Sox are 8-20, and 3-18 against teams that are not Kansas City. In order for the White Sox to string some wins together, do you think this falls on the quality of starting pitching that the White Sox get? Well, in this case, I think the starting pitching has improved. So now we're seeing the bullpen start to uh, show itself. As, you know, we, I guess you know when you look at the the clusters of losses they had, they had you know terrible clutch hitting to open the season. Then they had a rough of a run of really rough starting pitching uh, that burned out the bullpen. And now you're seeing kind of a normalization where the offense is okay or watchable. You know, they're still not lighting it up with runners in scoring position, but they're not you know killing the fans either. Uh, the starters are going six innings on a reliable basis. If, especially if you count uh, Hector Santiago and Chris Volstad as, as one pitcher, uh, which they kind of are in that tandem setup, you know they're going six innings more often, and and so the bullpen isn't getting exposed like it was, and and so now I think it's the bullpen's turn, especially uh, on Tuesday with the way they blew that game. That just you know it, it's. Not the greatest relief core, and especially when Nate Jones doesn't look great, and especially when Bruce Rondon, who, you know, is a good find for, um, you know, maybe the fourth best righty on the on the, on the bullpen, or maybe the fourth best reliever. But right now he's being used as the other setup guy before Nate Jones, and I think when that's the case, it kind of shows the lack of depth that Rick Renteria has to negotiate. And, you know, with Nate Jones, his ERA is 1.5. He has the best ERA for the White Sox. He has pitched 12 innings. He's allowed six walks and nine hits. So he's putting a runner on base more often in in his innings. They haven't been exactly the cleanest. And I know Soria gets the blame. But as you mentioned, Bruce Rondon, he flirted with danger, putting a couple base runners on Nate Jones also flirted with danger, having a couple base runners on. It's just that those two were able to get out of those jams 
where Soria gives up the solo home run, and then it just kind of continues to fall apart, and the White Sox end up losing that game. And moving forward, because this was a question that I got on Twitter on if Rick Renteria is going to use Nate Jones against the best of the opposing team's lineup, and Soria is going to be used against the non-best. So if the best of a team's lineup is 2-3-4, then Soria will come in when it's like 5 6 7 8 9 uh, In the situation for Tuesday, with the top of the order coming up, would you like to see that flip-flop moving forward in that if you could anticipate that the top of the lineup is going to be coming up to bat in the ninth inning, Jim, that you would want Nate Jones ready for the ninth inning and have Soria pitch in the eighth inning? Or are you okay with Joaquin Soria closing games at the moment? I wouldn't mind, you know, ideally when, when you know, hopefully Jones returns to his his old self, you know, walking fewer guys that he would take the majority of, of I guess, the highest leverage situations, whether that's the eighth or ninth of based on the top of the order uh, entering Tuesday's game, I think Soria had been throwing the ball better as of late and and not quite just in a hot hand thing where he's just getting more results, but uh, throwing strikes. And we saw that with Jones coming out and, and part of Jones's control problems were he was having trouble establishing a landing spot, was stumbling on his follow through with throwing the ball wide. And, you know, perhaps that's a one night thing and it'll be uh, easily remedied. But with Soria, I think, um, ultimately he'd be better off in a lesser role just because he does seem like, you know, he's kind of having shields problem where the more straightforward stuff, the fastball changeup combination isn't quite working for him. So he's had to go to slow and slower curveballs and having to use them twice in one at bat. And I think that's what hurt him with the Molina walk off was that he threw a slow curveball. Uh, it just showed him that. And he came back with a curveball that wasn't quite as slow, wasn't quite as dramatic, uh, left a bit too up and Molina raked it to left field for the walk off. And, um, you know, so I think with both pitchers, it's a case where, um, you know, if, you can't throw a fastball that hitters respect. Can't throw a changeup that is really that compelling. You know, if those two pitches aren't complementing each other, and you have to go to the junk, uh, I don't know if Soria is quite as accomplished or as used to Shields. You know, I think Shields already went through his toughest learning curve and learning how to, um, you know, I guess succeed as a as a guy with you know just a fraction of the fastball he used to have. I don't know if Soria is quite there yet. So, if he can't really throw the fastball and changeup, then uh, yeah, I don't like Soria as a closer. And, and one thing I'm kind of keeping an eye on, and I might write about this, is uh, you know the, the the catchers and and it seems like Soria more than other pitchers is being hurt by poor framing or for, poor receiving or poor umpiring, you know, whatever you want to call it. That he gets in these bad counts, and I think uh, you know Shields, uh, they were just remind me of a lot of each other, and that they do need better counts to. Uh, you know, allow them to have their full arsenal when they're pitching from behind and they don't like their fastball. I think it kind of makes it pretty ugly in terms of their options and what they feel they can throw for an effective strike at that point. And Soria, I think multiple times, uh, his last couple times out has been uh, a couple of bets. He's been putting uh, against the ropes by just a good first pitch that for one reason or another is just called a ball. Well, it's better than my backup plan of just having Chris Beck throw the last three innings of every game. Yeah, although, you know, <laughs> bring back uh, Goose Gossage. He has, he can, I think he can grow the same kind of mustache, so. <laughs> you should. You should. Back on the air, by the way, six innings, eight hits allowed, uh, just one walk. He does have three strikeouts, and he has allowed two earned runs in the, the one home run. But he does have a save. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, when you watch Beck pitch, it's, it's like he learned from last year and, and, and learned kind of from Juan Manaya and that's, you know, first thing, throw strikes. You know, if you get hit around a bit, uh, especially in the games he's expected to be brought into where it's, you know, multiple innings and just get through it and save Renteria from having to use one more reliever, I think throwing strikes is the way to go. So, uh, so far, at least it's a way to stay in the majors and, uh, you know, he's not replicating the strikeouts that he racked up in Charlotte and that could be a problem. But, you know, right now I think he's following the right playbook. Well, I think he's got somewhat of a cushion, though. I mean, Juan Minaya is not pitching well. Gregory Infante is not pitching well now in Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think Beck has some cushion as far as sticking around. It's just right now closing games for the White Sox. Uh, obviously, the debate is, is it Soria or is it Nate Jones moving forward? Who does everyone feel more comfortable with? Uh, but I wouldn't be shocked, Jim, that if we do see games where the White Sox are up 10-4, to 4, the offense is clicking, and it comes to around the seventh inning that Renteria will continue to attempt to have Chris Beck eat the last three innings and get himself that type of save. Sure, especially since that's what he was doing in Charlotte, throwing three innings at a time. So, um, yeah, especially like say if the White Sox starters, maybe Carson Fulmer in particular, or maybe Reynaldo Lopez eases up a bit, but you know they just struggled to go six innings again, then. Yeah, uh, and if Olstad and Santiago are handling the fifth spot, and and so you have two relievers being used up on one day, yeah, I can imagine whether it's you know one way or another, whether they're leading big or getting blown out, I imagine that will be his role more or less is not as a mid-inning tandem guy, but more as a mop-up, uh, get the game over with, and allow the rest of the bullpen to sit down. Right. It's not ideal, but when you're eight and twenty, <laughs> you know, just try to drop situations and scenarios. I mean, Rick Renteria said about as many, about all the games that the White Sox have had where it's been within one run that, you know, he's trying to remain upbeat, that we're close, we're getting close. But at the same time, you could point at these games, you'd be like, well, this is the bullpen's fault on why it was a one run loss. Uh, So it'd be interesting to see how Renteria handles the bullpen uh, moving forward if he decides to switch it up on the back end or he continues to stay with Joaquim Soria trying to close out games when the White Sox do have the lead. Going over to Yohan Mikata. Again, Mikata was pulled from today's game in the eighth inning due to hamstring tightness. He fouled off his right ankle, I believe, today. They say that his thumb is sore. So he's got a bum ankle. His hamstring is tight. His thumb is sore, Jim. Does Yohan Mikata need a break? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, when you see how well he's been playing as of late, kind of gives you the idea that he does have at least a high threshold for pain or is able to, it's not affecting the way he swings or the way he approaches at bats. His defense has been fine. So, you know, maybe he doesn't, um, uh, you know, perhaps you can sit him a day, you know, especially with Matt Davidson hitting, you know, hitting well and, and having good at bats. Uh, you can play him at third and Sanchez at second. Uh, you know, give us, um, you know, Daniel Polka an opportunity to get bats, especially against righties because I think they're facing all righties in the Minnesota series. So, you know, there are ways that Renteria can give him days off. But when you look at the at-bats he's had recently, especially the last couple of games, didn't strike out on Tuesday, struck out once, but, you know, drew two walks against uh, uh, the Cardinals and Carlos Martinez today. Uh, it seems like more reps are benefiting him and he's able to calm it down a little bit. So I'm, I'm hoping to see that strikeout rate drop. And, and I hope that these first two games suggest that the strikeout rate will be coming down and, if that's the case, and if and if 
more reps are helping him, then, you know, as long as he can take the field and he's not uh, at risk of, you know, making something completely unplayable for, you know, two or three weeks at a time, like we're seeing with Avi Garcia and his hamstring injury, um, then, you know, perhaps keep playing him, maybe give him, you know, one day off a week. But uh, it's it's kind of odd that, you know, it's happened multiple times and it's not keeping out of the lineup. So, you know, perhaps it is maybe something more along the lines of a cramp than anything, you know, really affecting his ability to get down the baselines and move around the field. I'm okay if he doesn't play tomorrow in the first game between the White Sox and Twins just to give his body a rest. Because if you continue to play him through these aches and pains, and if it becomes something worse, I'd hate to hear that Mikata is going to miss the next two to three weeks because this hamstring now is much worse and he needs to go on the disabled list. I, yeah. I'm, I'm okay with him taking tomorrow off. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think uh, when it comes to playing with nagging injuries at his stage in his career, um, yeah, I guess you'd count on youth helping him out you know, when it comes to recovering and and you know playing through stuff. I would just be more concerned with maybe forming bad habits, you know, injury, altering something in the swing or altering something in, uh, uh, you know, his throwing mechanics or, you know, his, his fielding, whatever you want to call it, that creates a bad habit and maybe creates a slump that's hard for him to get out of. But so far, uh, that doesn't look like it's been the case. Before we preview the upcoming series against the Minnesota Twins, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I use it all the time to buy Chicago White Sox tickets, and you should use it for this upcoming weekend series against the Minnesota Twins because SeatGeek has some terrific deals. They have tickets as cheap as $7 for the Thursday and Sunday game. Friday, they have tickets as cheap as 10 bucks. so after work, if you're looking to kick off the weekend, you can go down to Guaranteed Rate Field, and Saturday is Cinco de Mayo. And the giveaway for the White Sox is their White Sox soccer jersey. So if you like soccer and you like soccer jerseys and you like the White Sox, that might be the game for you. And SeatGeek has plenty of tickets for that Saturday night game. Best part is Sox Machine listeners get to save $20 off your first purchase by using SeatGeek. So either go to SeatGeek.com or download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone. And again, use promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off your first purchase. Now the series preview against the Minnesota Twins. This is a four-game series. And this is really weird to say, but the Detroit Tigers are still in second place. Because while the White Sox have been playing bad baseball... Uh, the Minnesota Twins have not been much better. They are 10 and 16 on the year, uh, which is a bit of a surprise for a team that was somewhat of a dark horse pick before the year to win the American League Central. The Twins are currently four and a half games back of the Cleveland Indians. And your probable pitchers for this series for Thursday's game, it is a 7:10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Jake Odorizzi for the Minnesota Twins against Ronaldo Lopez on Friday, May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Jose Barrios for the Minnesota Twins will be going up against Carson Falmer. Falmer's been looking good in his last two starts. 
Saturday, May 5th, again, Cinco de Mayo. It is Lance Lynn against, well, maybe Chris Volstead will start. Maybe be Hector Santiago, but it is their turn in, the, in this rotation. We'll probably see both of them for that Saturday game. And on Sunday, it is a familiar face, Kyle Gibson for the Twins against James Shields. And to start off with this series, Jim, I'm surprised on how poorly the Minnesota Twins have started this year. How about you? Yeah, it's been pretty ugly. Um especially and look at the way they've been struggling with a lot of dead spots in their offense. Um, bullpen has been pretty bad. Uh, and, and they kind of have a similar situation with the White Sox right now where their clutch hitting has just been abysmal too. So they're, they're, they have a slightly better record, but they have some similar strands of DNA with just how their season has gone so far. Yeah, offensively. Leading the way, I mean, he's got 13 doubles on the year. Eduardo Escobar, again, former White Sox player that was traded for Francisco Liriano. That was that deal, correct? Yes. Yeah. Escobar is hitting 308 with a 350 on base percentage. Sluggy, 582. He's got 13 doubles and four home runs. He is leading the way offensively. For the Twins, I mean, Joe Maurer, he's hitting 295, but again, not much power, just a one home run. Joe Maurer has 23 walks to 12 strikeouts. Yeah, he's That's been a good two-hitter. Yeah. But it's, it's really just Escobar, Maurer, and Kepler, and then the rest of the lineup, especially Dozier has been crashing and Sanoa's hurt. And yeah, it's just a, it's a lineup that really looks like it's struggling to get on base, and Logan Morrison has so far been a disaster for him at DH. Yeah, did the White Sox dodge a bullet there? Because I know that he was a popular guy on Twitter that, hey, White Sox could sign Logan Morrison for a year and he get bat DH instead of Matt Davidson. Did the White Sox dodge a bullet? Seems like it, although, you know, not much of one, I suppose, just because it would have been one year and eight million, basically. So, you know, it's not terrible, you know, using the adage that there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal, especially a one-year deal when you're rebuilding. So, you know, it wouldn't have hurt too much and you know, maybe, you know, butterfly effect and everything like that, where a different team sets up an entirely different set of circumstances. But at least right now, I think uh, given the way Davidson's playing, given the way, um, you know, they're able to use that roster spot on an interesting guy like Daniel Palka, you know, it's, uh, they were, I guess that proves them correct that they were, um, you know, better off being flexible. Yeah, just looking through as far as their offense, obviously they're missing Byron Buxton, Buxton going with the, the toe injury where they had to drill his toe. The hot paperclip. Hot paperclip. That sounds like a Hawk Harrelson story. Yeah, well, it's like that's uh, when I when I saw that story and I saw people grossing out, it's like Hawk conditioned us to those uh, blisters under toenails just with, uh, um, you know, how many times do you say he referenced it? Like a dozen times a year? So, <laughs> yeah, we know and, the deal. Uh, and, you know, the scarier thing is that Buxton is also dealing with migraines. Migraine's so bad that he can't even join the team in the clubhouse. Yeah. And uh, that's a scary situation. So obviously the Twins are, uh, they're a different team when Byron Buxton is in the lineup and he's playing center field. So this should be a pretty interesting series because again, the Twins are not playing good baseball and the White Sox are the White Sox at this moment. Uh, I can see where the White Sox win two out of four here. They split the series against the Twins. Uh, and, you know, give good vibes at home. And, and that's the key, right? The White Sox have to play better at home. They just have to play better at home. 
Yeah, because looking as far as the home records, yeah, the White Sox I think have the worst home record in the American League at yeah. two and ten. Yeah, that'd be that'd certainly be nice to know that that Rodney's had trouble closing games. He's already blown three saves, so he's you know had it rough and. Um, and yeah, you know, I watched. I think it was the Reds Twins. Yeah, Reds versus Twins. They beat Barrios, and I know Barrios looked like a world beater against the Sox. And hopefully, it's a case where he just runs hot and cold, and the White Sox are able to get him. But you're know, watching these other teams beat the Twins, and they just had an awful series against Cincinnati. Who do they have the worst record in the league or second worst? Cincinnati um, has the worst record yeah, in the league, and and they made the Twins look bad. So you hope that um, you know it's. Similar to what the White Sox had with just, you know, everything going wrong for them. And uh, just when they solve one problem, another one arises. Hopefully they're able to, you know, basically keep kicking them downhill. Well, hopefully the White Sox can help continue kicking the Twins downhill. Be making the Indians happy. The Indians are still not playing great baseball. They're just three games above 500. Uh, But if their offense starts clicking and nobody else in the American League Central uh, starts to get on a roll... The Indians could have this division wrapped up by Fourth of July. <laughs> it's, it's a bad division, yeah. <laughs> it's it, it, it's as bad as we thought it was going to be, folks, and uh, it's definitely starting to play out that way. But hopefully, the White Sox. It'd be great if they could win this series. If they sweep the Twins, they'll move into third place in the American League Central. So maybe that's something to root for. And again, it is the Twins, one of the White Sox uh, hated rivals. So we'll see how this series goes. Again, we'll recap the series on the next edition of the Sox Machine podcast on Monday. Our guest is one of our best friends of the show. It'll be Jim Callis as we'll be within a month of the Major League Baseball draft. We'll talk about the White Sox top prospects. We'll talk draft. Speaking of draft, I'll be releasing my second mock draft on Friday, May 4th, as that marks the one month away from who the White Sox will be picking at pick number four in the first round. So that's a couple of things to look forward to this week on SoxMachine.com. And that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you to all those that listen to us live on the live stream on Mixler.com slash SoxMachine. If you don't get a chance to listen to us live, no worries. Every show is recorded and uploaded into the podcast feed in the following day. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can listen to us in a variety of ways. One is through iTunes by going to the iTunes store, search Sox Machine, and you can subscribe to the show there. We got Google Play Music fixed, so thumbs up. You can now listen to the podcast there again. We're on Spotify and, of course, audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. Socks Machine Live is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.